Chapter 26, Part 2 of Discoveries Among the Ruins of Nineveh and Babylon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Wilma Magastino. Discoveries Among the Ruins of Nineveh and Babylon by Austin Lyard. Chapter 26, Part 2. We further gather from the records of the campaigns of the Assyrian kings that the country, both in Mesopotamia and to the west of the Euphrates, now included in the general term of the desert, was at that remote period, teeming with a dense population, both sedentary and nomad, that cities, towns, and villages arose on all sides, and that, consequently, the soil brought forth produced for the support of this great congregation of human beings all those settlements depended almost exclusively upon artificial irrigation hence the dry beds of enormous canals and countless watercourses which are spread like a network over the face of the country even the traveller accustomed to the triumphs of modern science and civilization gazes with wonder and awe upon these gigantic works and reflects with admiration upon the industry the skill and the power of those who made them and may not the waters be again turned into the empty channels and may not life be again spread over those parched and arid ways upon them no other curse has alighted than that of a false religion and a listless race of the information as to the religious system of the assyrians which may be derived from the inscriptions i am still unwilling to treat in the present state of our knowledge of their contents a far more intimate acquaintance with the character than we yet possess is required before the translation of such documents can be fully relied on all we can now venture to infer is that the assyrians worship one supreme god as the great national deity under whose immediate and special protection they live and the empire existed the name of this god appears to have been assured as nearly as can be determined at present from the inscriptions it was identified with that of the empire itself always called the country of assure it entered into those of both kings and private persons and was also applied to particular cities with assure but apparently far inferior to him in the celestial hierarchy all the cold the great gods were associated twelve other deities whose names i have given in table number three some of them may possibly identified with the divinities of the great pantheon although it is scarcely wise to hazard conjectures which must ere long been again abandoned these twelve gods may also have presided over the twelve months of the year and the vast number of still inferior gods in one inscription i believe stated to be no less than four thousand over the days of the year various phenomena and productions of nature in the celestial bodies it is difficult to understand such a system of polytheism unless we suppose that whilst there was but one supreme god represented sometimes under a triune form all the so-called inferior gods were originally mere names for events and outward things are symbols and myths although at one time generally accepted as such even by the common people their true meaning 
was only known in a corrupted age to the priests by whom they were turned into a mystery in a trade it may indeed be inferred from many passages in the scriptures that the system of theology not far differing from the assyrian prevailed at times amongst the jews themselves Ashur is generally if not always typified by the winged figure in the circle the question as to the space occupied by the city of nineveh at the time of its greatest prosperity is still far from being set at rest colonel rawlinson founding his opinion upon the names on bricks from the several sides believes the enclosures of nimrod koyanjik and korsabad and the small mounds of sharif khan is scarcely three miles from koyanjik as well as others in the immediate neighborhood to be the remains of distinct cities he would even separate the mound of nebunus from koyanjik identifying the former with nineveh and making the latter a mere suburb a glance at the plan of the ruins will show this conjecture to be quite untenable discoveries in both mounds prove that they belong to nearly the same period and that nebunus is the more recent of the two the supposition that any of these groups of mounds represent alone the city of nineveh can in no way be reconciled with the accounts in scripture and the greek authors which so remarkably coincide as to its extent a difficulty which leads colonel rawlinson to say that all these ruins form one of that group of cities which in the time of the prophet jonah were known by the common name of nineveh it is indeed true that on bricks from different bounds distinct names appear to be given to each locality and that those from kyanjik are inscribed with the name of nineveh whilst those from nimrod and korsabad bear others which have not yet been satisfactorily deciphered these names are preceded by a determinative monogram assumed to signify a city but which undoubtedly also applies to a fort or fortified palace nahum describes nineveh as a city of many strongholds and gates and such i believe it to have been each fort or stronghold having a different name the most important as it was the best defended may at one time have been the palace at koyanjik which being especially called nineveh gave its name to the whole city by no other supposition can we reconcile the united testimony of ancient writers as to the great size of nineveh with the present remains it is very doubtful whether these fortified enclosures contain many buildings beside the royal palaces and such temples and public edifices as were attached to them at nimrod excavations were made in various parts of the enclosed space and it was carefully examined with a view to ascertain whether any foundations or remains of houses still existed none were discovered except at the southeastern corner where the height of the earth above the usual level at once showed the existence of ruins in most parts of the enclosure the natural soil seems never to have been disturbed and in some places the conglomerate rock is almost denuded of earth such is also the case opposite mosul the remains of one or two buildings appear to exist within the enclosure but in the greater part there are no indications whatever of ancient edifices and the conglomerate rock is as at nimrod on a level with the surrounding soil at korsaban 
The greater part of the enclosed space is so much below the surrounding country that it is covered with a marsh formed by the small river Kasser, which flows near the ruins. Within the walls, which are scarcely more than a mile square, can only be traced the remains of one or two buildings and of a problem standing below the platform and above two hundred yards from the ascent to the palace but they are at once perceived by well-defined inequalities in the soil if the walls forming the enclosures of karsabad and other assyrian ruins were the outer defences of a city abruptly facing the open country it is difficult to account for the fact of the palace having been built in the same line and actually forming part of them all access to it must have been strongly fortified and even the view over the surrounding country the chief object of such a position must have been shut out after several careful excavations of the ruins and of the spaces enclosed by the ramparts of earth i am still inclined to the opinion that they were royal dwellings with their dependent buildings and parks or paradises fortified like the palace temples of egypt capable of standing a prolonged siege and a place of refuge for the inhabitants in case of invasion they may have been called by different names but they were all included within the area of that great city known to the jews and to the greeks as nineveh i will not pretend to say that the whole of this vast space was thickly inhabited or built upon as i have elsewhere observed we must not judge of eastern cities by those of europe in asia gardens and orchards containing suburbs and even distinct villages collected round a walled city are all included by the natives under one general name such is the case with isfahan and damascus and such i believe it to have been with ancient nineveh a few remarks are necessary in the additional information afforded by recent discoveries as to the architecture and architectural decorations external and internal of the assyrian palaces the inscriptions on their walls especially in those of kayanjik and Karsabad, appear to contain important and even minute details not only as to their general plan and mode of construction but even as to the materials employed for their different parts and for the objects of sculpture and ornaments placed in them this fact furnishes another remarkable analogy between the records of the jewish and the assyrian kings to the history of their monarchs and of their nation the hebrew chroniclers have added a full account of the building and adornments of the temple and palaces of solomon in both cases from the use of technical words we can scarcely hope to understand with any degree of certainty all the details it is impossible to comprehend by the help of the descriptions alone the plan or appearance of the temple of solomon this arises not only from our being unacquainted with the exact meaning of various hebrew architectural terms but also from the difficulty experienced even in ordinary cases of restoring from mere description an edifice of any kind in the assyrian inscriptions we labor of course under still greater disadvantages the language in which they are written is as yet but very imperfectly known and although we may be able to explain with some confidence the general meaning of the historical paragraphs yet when we come to technical words relating to architecture 
even with a very intimate acquaintance with the Assyrian tongue, we could scarcely hope to ascertain their precise signification. On the other hand, the materials and the general plan of the Assyrian palaces are still preserved, whilst of the great edifices of the Jews, not a fragment of masonry, nor the smallest remains are left to guide us. The architecture of the one people, however, may be illustrated by that of the other, with the help of the sacred books and of the ruins of the palaces of Nineveh, together with that of contemporary and later remains, as well as from customs still existing in the East, we may, to a certain extent, restore the principal buildings of both nations. Before suggesting a general restoration of the royal edifices of Nineveh, I shall endeavour to point out the analogies which appear to exist between the actual remains and what is recorded of the temple and palaces of Solomon. In the first place, as Sennacherib in his inscriptions declares himself to have done, the Jewish king sent the bearers of burdens and the hewers into the mountains to bring great stones, costly stones, and hewed stones to lay the foundations which were probably artificial platforms resembling the Assyrian mounds, though constructed of more solid materials. We have the remains of such a terrace or stage of stone masonry, perhaps built by King Solomon himself at Baalbek, the enormous size of some of the hewn stones existing in that structure and of those still seen in the quarries, some being more than sixty feet long, has excited the wonder of modern travelers. The dimensions of the Temple of Jerusalem, three score cubits long, twenty broad and thirty high, were much smaller than those of the great edifices explored in Assyria. Solomon's own palace, however, appears to have been considerably larger and to have more nearly approached in its proportions those of the kings of Nineveh, for it was one hundred cubits long, fifty broad, and thirty high. The porch before the temple, twenty cubits by ten, may have been a prophylum, such as was discovered at Karsabad, in front of the palace. The chambers, with the exception of the oracle, were exceedingly small, the largest being only seven cubits broad, for without, in the wall of the house, he made numerous rests round about that the beams should not be fastened in the walls of the house. The words in italics are inserted in our version to make good the sense, and may consequently not convey the exact meaning, which may be that these chambers were thus narrow, that the beams might be supported without the use of pillars. A reason already suggested for the narrowness of the greater number of chambers in the Assyrian palaces. These smaller rooms appear to have been built round a large central chamber called the Oracle, the whole arrangement thus corresponding with the halls and surrounding rooms at Nimrod, Korsabad, and Koyunjik. The Oracle itself was twenty cubits square smaller far in dimensions than the Nineveh halls, but it was twenty cubits high. An important fact, illustrative of Assyrian architecture, for as the building was thirty cubits in height, the oracle must not only have been much loftier than the adjoining chambers, but must have had an upper structure of ten cubits. Within it 
where the two cherubim of olive wood ten cubits high, with wings each five cubits long, and he carved all the house around with carved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers within and without. The cherubim have been described by biblical commentators as mythic figures uniting the human head with the body of a lion or an ox and the wings of an eagle. If for the palm trees we substitute the sacred tree of the Nineveh sculptures and for the open flowers the Assyrian tulip-shaped ornament, objects most probably very nearly resembling each other, we find that the oracle of the temple was almost identical, in general form and in its ornaments, with some of the chambers of Nimrod and Karsabad. In the Assyrian halls, too, the winged human-headed bulls were in the side of the wall, and their wings, like those of the cherubim, touch one another in the midst of the house. The dimensions of these figures were in some cases nearly the same namely fifteen feet square the doors were also carved with cherubim and palm trees and open flowers and thus with the other parts of the building corresponded with those of the assyrian palaces on the walls at nineveh the only addition appears to have been the introduction of the human form in the image of the king which were an abomination to the jews the pomegranates and lilies of solomon's temple must have been nearly identical with the usual Assyrian ornament, in which, and particularly at Korsabad, the pomegranate frequently takes the place of the tulip and the cone. But the description given by Josephus of the interior of one of Solomon's houses, already quoted by Mr. Ferguson in support of his ingenious arguments, even more completely corresponds with and illustrates the chambers in the palaces of Nineveh. Solomon built some of these houses with stones, and wainscoted the walls with other stones that were sawed and were of great value, such as were dug out of the bowels of the earth, for ornaments of temples and sea. The arrangement of the curious workmanship of these stones was in three rows, but the fourth was preeminent for the beauty of its sculpture, for on it were represented trees in all sorts of plants, with the shadows caused by their branches and the leaves that hung down from them. These trees and plants covered the stone that was beneath them, and their leaves were wrought so wonderfully thin and subtile that they appeared almost in motion, but the rest of the wall up to the roof was plastered over, as it were, wrought over with various colors and pictures. To complete the analogy between the two edifices, it would appear that Solomon was seven years building a temple, and Sennacherib about the same time building his great palace at Koyanjik. The ceiling, roof, and beams of the temple were of cedar wood. The discoveries in the ruins at Nimrod show that the same precious wood was used in the Assyrian edifices, and the king of Nineveh, as we learn from the inscriptions, employed men, precisely as Solomon had done, to cut it in Mount Lebanon. Fur was also employed in the Jewish buildings, and probably in those of Assyria. In the proposed restoration of the palace at Koyanjik from the existing remains, the building does not face the cardinal points of the compass. I will, however, assume, for convenience sake, that it stands due north and south. 
to the west therefore it immediately overlooked the tigris and on that side was one of its principal facades the edifice must have risen on the very edge of the platform the foot of which was at that time washed by the river if therefore there were any access to the palace on the river front it must necessarily have been by a flight of steps or an inclined way leading down to the water's edge and there might have been great stairs parallel to the basement walls at persepolis although from the fact of there having been a grand entrance to the palace on this side it is highly probable that some such approach once existed no remains whatever of it have been discovered the western facade like the eastern was formed by five pairs of human-headed bulls and numerous colossal figures forming three distinct gateways the principal approach to the palace appears however to have been on the eastern side where the great bulls bearing the annals of sennacherib still stand in the frontispiece i have been able by the assistance of mr ferguson to give a restoration of this magnificent facade and entrance inclined ways or broad flights of steps appear to have led up to it from the foot of the platform and the remains of them consisting of huge squared stones are still seen in the ravines which are but the ancient ascents depend by the winter rains of centuries from this grand entrance direct access could be had to all the principal halls and chambers in the palace that on the western face as appears from the ruins only opened into a set of eight rooms the chambers hitherto explored appear to have been grouped round three great halls it must be borne in mind however that the palace extended considerably to the northeast of the grand entrance and that there may have been another hall and similar dependent chambers in that part of the edifice only a part of the palace has been hitherto excavated and we are not in possession of a perfect ground plan of it the general arrangement of the chambers at koyanjik is similar to that of Korsabad, though the extent of the building is very much greater it is also to be remarked that the Korsabad mound falls gradually to the level of the plain apparently showing the remains of a succession of broad terraces and that parts of the palace such as the propylae were actually beneath the platform and remove some distance from it in the midst of the walled enclosure at koyanjik however the whole of the royal edifice with its dependent buildings appears to have stood on the summit of the artificial basement whose lofty perpendicular sides could only have been accessible by steps or inclined ways no propylae or other edifices connected with the palace have as yet been discovered below the platform the inscriptions appear to refer to far distinct parts of the palace three of which inhabited by the women seem subsequently to have been reduced to one it is not clear whether they were all on the ground floor or whether they formed different stories mr ferguson in his ingenious work on the restoration of the palaces of nineveh in which he has with great learning and research fully examined the subject of the architecture of the assyrians and ancient persians availing himself of the facts then furnished by the discoveries endeavors to divide the karsabad palace after the manner of modern mussulman houses into the salam lake or apartments of the men and the harem 
or those of the women the division he suggests must of course depend upon conjecture but it may i think be considered as highly probable until fuller and more accurate translations of the inscriptions than can yet be made may furnish us with some positive data on the subject in the ruins of kayanjik there is nothing as far as i am aware to mark the distinction between the male and female apartments of a temple no remains have as yet been found at kayanjik nor is there any high conical mound as at nimrod and Korsabad. in all the assyrian edifices hitherto explored we have the same general interior plan on the four sides of the great halls are two or three narrow parallel chambers opening one into the other most of them have doorways at each end leading into smaller rooms which have no other outlet it seems highly probable that this uniform plan was adopted with reference to the peculiar architectural arrangements required by the building and i agree with mr ferguson in attributing it to the mode resorted to for lighting the apartments in my former work i express a belief that the chambers receive light through an opening in the roof although this may have been the case in some instances yet recent discoveries now prove that the assyrian palaces had more than one story such being the fact it is evident that other means must have been adopted to admit daylight to the inner rooms on the ground floor mr ferguson's suggestion that the upper part of the halls and principal chambers was formed by a row of pillars supporting the ceiling and admitting a free circulation of light and air appears to me to meet to a certain extent the difficulty it has moreover been borne out by subsequent discoveries and by the representation of a large building apparently a palace on one of the bas-reliefs discovered at Koyanjik, in the restoration of the exterior of the Koyanjik palace forming a frontispiece to this volume a somewhat similar capital has been adopted in preference to that taken by mr ferguson from persepolis which although undoubtedly like the other architectural details of those celebrated ruins assyrian in character are not authorized by any known assyrian remains a row of pillars or of alternate pillars and masonry would answer the purpose intended if they opened into a well-lighted hall yet inner chambers such as are found in the ruins of kayanjik must have remained in almost entire darkness and it is not improbable that such was the case to judge from modern eastern houses in which the absence of light is considered essential to secure a cold temperature the sculptures and decorations in them could then only be seen by torchlight the great halls were probably in some cases entirely open to the air like the courtyards of the modern houses of mosul whose walls are still adorned with sculptured alabaster when they were covered in the roof was borne by enormous pillars of wood or brickwork and rose so far above the surrounding part of the building that light was admitted by columns and buttresses immediately beneath the ceiling it is most probable that there were two or three stories of chambers opening into them either by columns or by windows such appears to have been the case in solomon's temple for Josephus tells us that the great inner sanctuary was surrounded by small rooms over these rooms were other rooms 
and others above them equal both in their measure and numbers and doth these reach to a height to equal to the lower part of the house for the upper had no buildings about it we have also an illustration of this arrangement of chambers in the modern houses of some parts of persia in which a great central hall called an iwan rises to the top of the building and has small rooms in two or three separate stories opening by windows into it whilst the inner chambers having no windows at all have no more light than that which reaches them through the door sometimes these side chambers open into a centre court as i have suggested may have been the case in the Nineveh palaces then a projecting roof of woodwork protects the carved and painted walls from injury by the weather curtains and awnings were also suspended above the windows and entrances toward off the rays of the sun End of chapter 26 part 2 Recording by Wilma Magastino